It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Hi, this is Nathan. This week, we have students here for our week-long discipleship training program. And as such, we decided it would be fun to invite some of the other instructors to teach Daily Thunder throughout this week. Before we jump into today's Daily Thunder, I want to remind you that Eric has been going through a spiritual biography of a nation every Sunday morning. If you haven't been following the series, Eric is walking through the history of America as it was being formed and founded. Well, Eric is pulling out some great spiritual principles using the history of America. If you're a history buff or just want to learn more about the founding of our country and the spiritual principles that come out of that, I would encourage you to check out The Spiritual Biography of a Nation, and you can do so by going to ellersley.com forward slash daily. Now, yesterday, Sandy began a two-part series on As Jesus Is, So We Are in This World. So if you haven't listened to yesterday's Daily Thunder, I would encourage you to pause and listen to that one first. But let's jump into part two of Sandy McConaughey's series, As He Is, So We Are in This World. So yesterday I started out asking you some questions. So of course I'm going to start that way this morning. (laughs) Are you ready for two more questions or so? Okay, these I want you to answer. Okay, first one you can answer with a hand or not. The second one, I want you to raise your hand and I'm going to pick on you, okay? Has God ever asked something of you that you didn't want to do and therefore you didn't do it? There's lots of hands. (laughs) The second question is, why didn't you obey? Raise your hand if you know why. Fear. Talked myself out of it. Fear. Convinced myself it wasn't God, but later realized it was. (laughs) Fear. Anything else? Selfishness. We sometimes know what God's leading us to do, don't we? And out of self-preservation, self-consciousness, fear, uh, maybe that isn't God, really. Uh, I hope it isn't, because I think it isn't. (laughs) That kind of thing. We don't obey. Have we? I want to talk about idolatry, idols. Have we made an idol of staying safe? Of being secure? Of allowing distractions of all kinds? Distractions sometimes are the biggest idols in our life. Do we make idols out of good health so that our focus is all the time (coughs) on eating right and jogging the right distance and working out and getting enough rest and doing all the late uh, 
trendy things in order to just be of optimum physical health. And so that you have to stay where there's a gym and where there's a health food store and where there's all kinds of stuff that you need to stay healthy. Do we make idols out of those kinds of things? Do we make idols of peaceful relationships? So much so that we are afraid to say anything that would cause any kind of conflict. Even if it's truth, it's the gospel. We don't want to be thought of as being disagreeable or unfriendly or unkind or unloving or too outlandish or just too weird. And so we want to just keep our relationships peaceful. Have we made an idol of a comfortable life? I have recently had to confess that I've made an idol of some of these things. This is for me, too. These lessons, every time I think about them, I know I have more sanctifying to go through. Risk. Do we risk things out of becoming obedient to Jesus? Has Jesus changed since he walked this earth? Did he risk anything? Is he still risking things? Yes, he is. I have the little children in here nodding their heads. Yes, he is. <coughs> Jesus risks the lives and the comfort and the relationships with others of his blessed people called saints. His church, his people. He risks things through them. Do we excuse ourselves from risk-taking? We excuse ourselves. Do we excuse ourselves from risking the disapproval of the world like Jesus did? Remember our key verse, as he is, so are we in this world. He risks even our lives, even this day. <clears throat> Do we risk the disapproval of the world? Do we excuse ourselves from risking being hated by the world? Do we excuse ourselves from risking disease coming upon us in order to minister to others? Remember that big, bad, black plague back in history? It was the Christians who went to those who were sick and poor and needy and brought food to them and risked their own lives to care for them and administer comfort and prayer and nourishment to them. In the middle of the Black Plague, how do we feel about going to our neighbors who may have COVID, who may be old and infirm and they're just lying there and you know you have an old neighbor and they may have something that they need. Are we afraid to risk our own getting COVID in order to risk loving someone else? 
Do we excuse ourselves from risking the embarrassment of being identified with Jesus? Do we excuse ourselves from risking anything that surrender and obedience to God would bring our way? It's good to just stop and think about these sort of sobering things every so often, isn't it? To remind ourselves that we're not just happy-go-lucky Christians who just like to hang out together. We do like that. And we are supposed to be at peace with our Lord Jesus. But there are so many things that Jesus is through his body in this world. We want to participate no matter what the risk is. We want to be the body of Christ in the world. The people who live in the countries where Christianity is persecuted did not choose. Many, most of them didn't choose to live there. <clears throat> they just live there. And they have to deal with the, with the everyday risks that they have coming their way. And they can't, they can't really shield their, themselves from these risks. They can't make too many idols out of staying safe. They just live this way. We've been brought up in a whole different kind of country where freedom has taught us things about God that may not be true. We love our country, and we love the fact that it's, it's a place where we can worship God freely, we can witness freely, we can <clears throat> hopefully in the future continue to do these things freely. However, there may come a time when we live in a country that persecutes Christians. Are we getting ready? Do we have need to hear things like this in order to ready ourselves what, for what may be coming our way? And even if it doesn't, are we still in a free environment going all out to obey what, what has been called the Great Commission that's upon every single Christian's life, no one is excused from it. But we make excuses for not taking these kinds of risks. Do we, ri do we excuse ourselves from risking actually having a Christ-like nature and character in a very un-Christ-like world? What sort of reasons quote-unquote, in parentheses, excuses, do we use? Do we wait for the conditions to be just right and convenient before stepping out into obedience? Do we wait for God to prompt us in, in what to do, who to go to, how to go? I'm just waiting upon God to just show me what to do, who to go to. Do we wait for God to actually give us a sign? Do we wait until we feel ready and able? Do we wait until we feel like we'll be completely understood? You see what's behind those things? Hesitation, dragging of feet, 
waiting for God to prompt the obedience that he's already asked of us. Are we sure we're not just making excuses? Are we sure we really want to hear and want to obey the voice of the Lord through his word? He said, take heed how you hear. Have you heard that you may have affliction and trials and suffering and sacrifice? But you, you don't think anything about that. You don't want to hear about that. And so what, what you think about that is, okay, how can I avoid that? <clears throat> Do we actually humbly incline the ears of our heart to listen, listen with intentionality? With a willingness to change if needed, or a willingness to be inconvenienced or tried, or a willingness to be thought of? as a fool? Sorry, I, t I told you I was going to only ask you two questions, but it appears there's a whole lot more than two. <laughs> Do I value humble obedience over self-preserving safety? Right now, it may not feel safe to cross the street and talk to my neighbor about Jesus. It doesn't feel very safe because we're, we're in the middle of a, a so-called pandemic with disease present. You know what? If God prompts us in our heart and our heart's pounding and we're no, we know we're supposed to go across the street, we better go no matter what. No matter if the dog bites us when <laughs> we walk into the yard, no matter if uh, we find out that there's COVID in their home and we just walked into it, it doesn't matter. What matters is obedience. I, I read in Hebrews this morning that there are myriads of angels. You know what angel means? Messengers. You know what messengers are sent out to do? Those angels, those messengers, to minister to the saints. How many times have we been preserved or helped or protected by God's messengers or by God himself? When I read that this morning, I had thoughts I had never had about angels. There's myriads of angels, myriads of, of those Beings who are sent out to minister to us. I just sat there for a while and thought about that. That's amazing. It's a great thing to remember. We're not alone. We have Jesus, and we have these ministering messengers and helpers of God to be there for us. If I had time, I'd tell you a story about how an angel helped us out one time. Maybe it was more than one because it was so much help. I think it took more than one. <clears throat> Do we take these kinds of verses to heart? I'm going to read a few verses. John 15, 18 through 20. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you, said Jesus. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. 
Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. As he is, so are we in this world. Paul said, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Nathan has taught you in what that word all means in Greek. <clears throat> it means all. It's in this verse. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. What have you done with that verse? Are you expecting persecution? You should be, rather than trying to avoid it. Do we somehow think that our experience in this world and living the life of Jesus, being as he is, will not be as it has been for that great cloud of witnesses who has gone on before us? Like I mentioned yesterday, there are so many, many stories of those who have gone before us who were martyred, who were beaten, who were fed to the lions, who had everything taken away from them and left destitute, and all manners of afflictions and trials. 1 Corinthians 4.11. That last one I read was 2 Timothy 3.10-12. through 12. <clears throat> This is 1 Corinthians 4.11. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. Do we expect these kinds of things? Or do we make enough excuses that we can actually avoid them, if at all possible? Hebrews 10, 32 through 33. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. We're part of a body whose many, there are many, many members of that body who have been made a public spectacle, who've been reproached and gone through tribulations. We are part of that same body. Should we try to avoid what they embraced? What they esteemed as sharing the sufferings of their Lord, being as he is in this world? 1 Peter 4, 12-14, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. These fiery ordeals that Peter is talking about 
is not just trying to avoid embarrassment or ridicule or being uncool. It was avoiding being burned, being fed to lions, being in the, the uh, Rome's arenas where they persecuted Christians with horrible, torturous things. And he's encouraging them, don't be surprised at this. It's coming upon you for your testing. But to the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Do we put things together like that, like Peter's writing? If you are reviled, you're blessed. <clears throat> because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, upon you when you suffer for the name of Christ. Rejoice. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed but is to glorify God in this name. Hebrews 13.3, Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. 1 Peter 2.20, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if... When you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. In this world as Christians, we can expect these things. There is cost. There is sacrifice. There is suffering. There is persecution. Because... It is all coming out against Jesus. It is as he is in this world. <clears throat> in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, it says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. For my sake, rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets with which were before you. So, so far beyond what our normal response to persecution and suffering might be. We might sit in sorrow and dejection and tears if we <clears throat> had all manner of evil falsely said against us. How would that feel? But if we do that for Jesus' sake, we are to rejoice and be exceeding glad. Philippians 1, 27 through 29. Let your conversation be as it becomes the gospel of Christ, that whether I come, this is Paul speaking to the Philippians, whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them 
an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given on the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. We like that believing half of that phrase, don't we? It's been given to you to believe, but also to suffer for his name's sake. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 18, here is why. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? What are we seeking to preserve? What, we, what do we think can ever harm our relationship with Jesus, our spirit, which is eternal, because it's the spirit of Christ who dwells within us that has made us alive in him? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's at the end of Romans 8. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And, and bold this phrase, keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for, suffer, for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Being alive in the Spirit is eternal. And nothing can touch that if we will abide in that life. Do we live out the gospel? Do we keep a good conscience? There are five gospels, says evangelist Rodney Smith way back when. Five gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. But most people will never read the first four. Do we exhibit the gospel? Live it out? Speak it out? So those who will not read the first four gospels actually have access to the fifth one? Beloved, do not be surprised at this fiery ordeal. I want to uh, do something unusual. I want to read you a story. Would you think that's a good way to end episode two? <laughs> As always, we all love a story, don't we? I'm not going to remark about where this story came from or who it was written by until I'm done. She was brave and she was beautiful. 
beautiful not only in bodily form, but also in serenity of soul and in shining of spirit. My earliest recollections of her were of a wondrous woman of warmth, vibrancy, and overflowing good cheer. <clears throat> her face glowed with a radiance of remarkable joy. Her ready smile, her happy humor, her vibrant voice had won her the admiration of others who often called her Sister Sunshine. Yet her humble home was a typical African frontier house built of crooked, hand-cut poles plastered with mud, coated with cow dung to repel insects and thatched with grass. For her, life, all of life, was a great adventure with God. He and she were constant companions in an unfolding drama of divine design. Nothing that happened in her adventuresome and exciting career was ever an accident of this, she was sure. It mattered not whether she was planting cuttings of golden shower in her garden or cleansing the ugly ulcer of a fly-ridden Afri African. She could do it with commingled courage, love, and elan. She would tackle any task with contagious confidence. She, she would say, there is no such word as can't. Let's just do it. And she did. A certain wondrous wholesomeness marked her life and conduct. She was born to be brave. She was bound to be beautiful. Life was for living. With joy and gracious generosity, she was glad to give and give and give of herself to enrich others. She was my mother. Long before I appeared on the scene, her life as a young person had been a dynamic demonstration of our father's faithfulness to one who trusted him without flinching. In the first 30 years of her adventuresome career were packed the power of a living Lord who proved himself her sole support and strength under the most rough and rugged ordeals. Just yesterday, I reread the brief notes she left behind telling of those heroic years. Again, as always, they stirred my spirit to see her emerge with such serene and shining confidence in Christ, her beloved friend and present companion. How fortunate, how favored was I to have been mothered by such a woman. She grew up in a robust family of seven girls and one boy. Her father was a mighty moose of a man who, with muscles of iron and a will tough as tungsten, hewed himself a kingdom out of the northern Canadian wilderness. With stern self-discipline, he struggled to establish himself in the severe and spartan world of rock, bush, and muskeg. Where the long, cruel winters broke most men, he became a timber baron. Where the short, sultry summers, with their hordes of mosquitoes and black flies, dismayed others, he founded a thriving farm. Where roughness and toughness were a way of life, he and his wife raised their eight children in an atmosphere of decency and dignity. The entire family was strong in support of the small local church, but their religion, as with so many, was largely rote and ritual. It was a mental ascent to a creed without the dynamic life of God active in their affairs. 
Mother was one of the first precocious children to leave the family nest. With her brilliant mind and great intelligence, she finished high school at 15. This was kind of back in the early uh, part of the 1900s. Then she finished high school at 15. Then she took a teaching post in a remote village at 16. Some of her students were big, boisterous boys older than herself. Fascinated by her unusual femininity and beauty, they thought they could play around with such a gorgeous girl. Quickly they learned that the kind kid gloves of her tenderness sheathed hands and heart of stern stuff. There was no nonsense in her one-room schoolhouse, and so in short order, all the students adored and respected her. During this interval in her teenage teaching career, an itinerant evangelist came to her frontier community. In forthright, fearless preaching, he made clear the claims of Christ. This one, the Christ, who had come amongst us as a man, was none other than God, very God in disguise, garbed in human form. He it was who, in love and concern for us, gave up not only his glory, but also his very life to deliver us from our dilemma. Beyond this, he had triumphed over death, shattered the shackles of sin and Satan, and he now lived triumphantly to set men and women free to follow him in wondrous gratitude. For the teenage teacher, this was electrifying, challenging news. Unashamedly, Enthusiastically, she promptly capitulated to the call of Christ. With characteristic alacrity, she determined to yield her total lifelong allegiance and unflinching loyalty to the Lord of her life, the King of Kings. She would go anywhere, do anything, endure any hardship to serve him who loved her so deeply. As a mark of her complete commitment to Christ, she asked to be baptized in public before her friends and students. Hearing of this, her family were horrified. They were inclined to disown her. She was even forbidden to return home. Quickly, she discovered that though it may cost nothing to come to Christ for his free forgiveness and total acceptance, it can very well cost one everything to follow him in loyal service and humble devotion. Yet she was not a person to be dismayed by this alienation from her family. Instead, she set her will to do God's will, no matter the price to pay. She determined to pre prepare herself fully to serve anywhere on earth where her Lord might call her. There emerged in her character as a teenager this remarkable resolve ever to be at her best for God no matter how tough or trying the situation. She would flame bright amid the most drab surroundings. With implicit, quiet, yet buoyant confidence in Christ, she set off to attend Bible school in the United States. Her deep conviction was that if one was to speak for the master and minister in his name to a broken world, it must be in the power and authority of God's own revealed word and will. She was not a little prima donna parading her own captivating beauty and charming personality on life's little stage. She was, rather, a humble servant, prepared to lose her life in simple service to lost men and women. In short, 
all the bloom and loveliness of early womanhood gracing her, she was ready, if necessary, to be buried in some obscure spot to reach others for God. Through the deliberate laying down of her own life, she was willing to be the one the master would use to touch thousands. Not many teenagers are made of this stern stuff. At a period in life when most are completely preoccupied with their own personal plans and pleasure, she was totally taken up with discovering God's purposes for her. At the Bible Institute, she met a young man as determined as herself to live only for the Lord. The two young zealots were drawn together irresistibly. Both felt strongly called to give themselves to Africa. So as they saturated their spirits in the scriptures, they also basked in the blossoming beauty of a romance and courtship of a divine arrangement. These two earnest, magnificent, talented young people saw themselves drawn together within the plans of God to reach and touch and heal others at the very ends of the earth. When in utter earnestness they stood hand in hand on their wedding day to take their vows of allegiance to one another, there were no options left open ever to opt out of their committal. It was a case straightforward and simple of until death do us part. Little did either of them realize as they stood together bound up in such strong love how soon those bonds would be shattered. Love for them would be much more than youthful daydreams, roses, candlelights, soft music, etc. Love would also be lives laid down in total obscurity and appalling darkness to deliver others. This, too, was something of the love of God expressed so poignantly in the poured-out life of God in Christ for his bride. The best man who stood beside them during the wedding ceremony was an eminently successful young businessman, his name was Otto Keller. Africa to this very day still weeps and writhes beneath the blood-stained hands of atrocious oppressors. And this was back a while back, but it's still a lot like this. The Idi Amins and Colonel Gaddafis are but the latest in a long line of tyrants to tramp underfoot their hapless victims. Slavery, superstition, and desperate degradation have always held sway in large segments of that population. Despite announced political emancipation, despite the impact of so-called enlightened education, despite a century of Christian missions, millions of men and women are still trapped in the toils of tears and turmoils. From the soul and spirit of this continent, there ever arises to heaven the burning cry, come over and help us. My mother, as a radiant bride of 21 years, and her handsome young husband, Carl, had heard that cry. In response to the compelling conviction of God's Spirit, they responded in positive action. Stepping out in unflinching faith, they sailed for East Africa with another young man named Clarence. Without promised support from any highly organized missionary board, they determined to trust only God. Not only was this for their financial affairs, but also for direct guidance in their daily deliberations. Reading through the brief resume of those early years, one is deeply moved by the implicit childlike confidence these three young people had in their Heavenly Father's care. 
It was 1913 when they landed at the steaming, sultry, malaria-ridden port of Dar es Salaam. Here, the German government officials, who then administered the territory for the Kaiser, assigned them to serve in an inland region never before touched by missionaries. They were ecstatic with expectation. The vigor and enthusiasm of youth bound them up in this new adventure for God. Here was virgin ground in which would be the so would be sown the love of the living Christ. Their first outpost was a de disease-ridden area inland, hundreds of miles from the coast. Their initial headquarters was a crudely constructed hut of hand-hewn poles plastered with mug, mud and cow dung, roofed with grass thatch. To top things off, the nearest water supply of any sort was nine miles away. Every drop they used had to be carried that far by one of the men. They settled down to live among the strange tribes people speaking a strange language. White people were as strange gods to these natives. Excuse me. This was a typical scenario for missionary pioneers at the turn of the century. Remarkably, both bride and groom had a unique capacity to acquire a new language and were soon able to converse with the natives. It was decided that finding a fresh water supply was absolutely essential, so both men, both men began to dig a well. It was a dreadful job in the tropical heat under an equatorial sun, but since the local Africans were not yet willing or ready for such toil, the two young Americans went to work with pick and shovel. Finally, one evening, a small seep of water began to spring from the stony bottom of the well. The three young people were almost delirious with delight. They had struck water. To celebrate, they drew up a kettle full and made their first pot of tea. But there was death, not life, in that well. For some obscure reason, the water was contaminated. And within three days, both young men were dead. The young lady lay writhing in a delirium of agony. When I was a small lad, mother occasionally recounted the horrendous events of those days to me. With the passing now of more than half a century, many of the details have faded and been forgotten. But what remains, however, is the flaming splendor of this brave young widow's faith in her heavenly father. There she was, half a world away from her family, her friends, her home, alone among a strange people in a strange land. She was cut off from all human comfort and consolation, stripped of her beloved, stripped of health, stripped of human support. She could find consolation only in Christ. Taken by porters to a distant railway station, she was deposited in a dark room, certain that she would die there. Life was cheap in the African bush, and most human bodies were tossed outside at night to be consumed by hyenas. Fortunately, she was spared that death. Instead, her rugged constitution helped her to recover, and she rallied from, from the very verge of the grave. Heartbroken and red-eyed with weeping, lonely and forlorn, she pled with God to release her from her agony. She begged that she too might die. But his word to her was, your work in Africa is not yet done. So with incredible courage, 
and indomitable determination, she went back to the bush, back to her humble hut of mud and thatch, back to her beloved black neighbors who now were sure she had in very truth been raised from the dead. Almost immediately after this, the dreadful First World War of 1914 through 18 erupted like a volcano on the world scene. The deadly outfall reached as far as East Africa's bush country. There, German and British troops fought fierce skirmishes across the sun-blasted countryside. Men died in bloody battles, bridges and buildings were blown into oblivion. Africans were recruited into the armed services and all communication with the outside world was cut off. Apparently, the only message ever to reach the young woman's family was a terse cable that merely stated, Carl and Clarence dead, Marion recovering. Then a steel curtain of silence closed off all communication for the next four years. Mother lived a Spartan life at the level of her African tribes people for the next few years. European food, much less North American fare, simply was not available. Even the most basic items, such as flour, sugar, tea, or coffee, simply could not be found. She survived on cassava root, cornmeal, bananas, and wild game. Most of her meals were cooked in clay pots over smoldering brushwood fires that burned between three stones set in the ground. Yet amid such adversity, Christ became to her the most beloved friend and intimate companion. His life, his presence, his power, and his peace gradually pervaded all of her being. Again, she became a radiant, glowing witness to the wondrous wind of God's gracious spirit who enfolded her life in his. In a short time, she became so fluent and proficient in the language of her adopted African people that she was considered the leading local authority in Kiswahili. She was invited to prepare study manuals on the subject and to set the exams for anyone learning the language. In her buoyant, beautiful way, she shared the good news of God's redeeming grace with the natives around her. Despite their shyness and reticence, she won many for Christ. Out of the laid-down lives of her two companions, there began to emerge new life in those whom they had come to serve. It is always this way. In order that some may live, others must die. As he is, so are we in this world. It is the inexorable, inexorable principle which governs the earth, birth, life, death, rebirth. So out of the agony, out of the anguish, out of the awesome darkness of despair, there began to blossom the new life of God in the African bush. Beyond this, there was reborn in this gallant young girl an unshakable conviction that Africa was the place of God's own special appointment for her. It was he who had brought her here. It was he who would keep and support her here. It was he who would bless her here. And it was he who in his own good time would lead her on. In such an assurance, she became a formidable person of enormous faith and utter confidence in God. Early, she discovered that even though stripped of all else, still there was God. 
And as she often said, when you have him, you have everything. Few indeed have ever really learned that lesson. In the ebb and flow of the ferocious fighting that surged back and forth across the bush country around her, no, I'm not going to read that one. It's about the German and British troops uh, finding her a special object of intrigue, and so they kept stealing her flag. It was, it was an American flag that she had sewn laboriously from scraps of her own skirts. <laughs> she, it declared bravely her total allegiance to the land of which she had become a citizen through marriage to Carl, her deceased husband. They kept stealing her flag, and she kept going after it. <laughs> uh, she was not one to be intimidated by the force of arms or impunity of men in uniform. This fearless courage was to be a hallmark of her entire life. Again and again in later years, I was to see her storm into native villages to rescue women and children abused and beaten by their drunken husbands and fathers. She was a lovely lady with a heart of a lion. In utter, raw selflessness, she would gladly, heroically, lay down her life for the sake of others. Little marvel did she become a byword of the bush. Little wonder she became mother to multitudes of Africans. Little surprise she was so beloved by the black people. The dreadful, desperate war years ground on slowly. She lived on quietly in stern oblivion. Her friends and family in North America knew not what had befallen her. Finally, in 1918, after five long, fierce years, she felt called of God to make her way home. The military authorities tried to dissuade her from such a dangerous mission. All the railway bridges and travel routes to the coast had either been destroyed or damaged in the fighting. The only possible route was to trek across country some 240 miles to Lake Victoria. There, she might find a lake steamer to take her across to Kenya. This she decided to do. 240 miles across the jungle? The prospect of hiking through the bush on foot, accompanied by a handful of porters, was not to deter her. Much of the terrain was primitive, big game country. At night, the lions and leopards would prowl around her little camp where fires burned brightly to discourage intruders. Singing merrily in her exquisite soprano voice, she maintained a high morale among the men who marched with her. And in the incredible record time of 11 days, she reached the lake. It was a feat never before matched by any European. But the blazing heat and merciless equatorial sun of the African bush had taken their toll of her strength. On board ship, she collapsed into a coma from which it was assumed she would never recover. But she reached Kisumu in Kenya. There, kind frontier missionaries, hearing of her plight, took her into their homes and into their hearts. While she was convalescing, word of her arrival traveled along the underground vine of African news. A young American who was serving in Kenya's famine relief heard of it. When years before he had learned of Carl's life cut short so swiftly, he in turn had given up his brilliant career in the United States and promptly left for Africa 
to serve in his friend's stead. He was Otto Keller, her deceased husband's best friend. Thus, there blossomed a new romance and affection between two dedicated young people who were to become my father and my mother. Their God was not only the God of all comfort, but also of all compensation. This is from the author of the, one of the books that he wrote is called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. His name is Philip Keller. This is his biography. It's called Wonder of the Wind. Wonder O, the Wind. Remember yesterday when I was reading from Nick Ripkin, he said, we, we were surprised at, at all the persecution and the failure and the lack of success. But what didn't surprise them was that God came through. We love stories with happy endings, but in the middle, it doesn't look like maybe things are going to turn out so well. But God always comes through. Sometimes by life like this, sometimes by death, like in the beginning for her. Could God have accomplished as much if there hadn't been that death and that resurrection? God can do things through you that only he can do. Though none go with me, still I will follow. We sing it over and over, but do we mean it? We don't need the crowd to go with us. We can, we can though none go with me, still follow. We need to step out from the crowd. We need to go with Jesus as he is in this world. You say, I want my life to make a difference. I want to stand out and be a light in this dark time. I want to be part of a generation that stands out and makes a difference for the kingdom of God. Yet, will you risk all? Will you expect hardship, suffering, sacrifice, and being misunderstood and persecuted as normal? For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that's so that we might, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. That was from 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. And Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Take courage. I have overcome the world. Maybe we will be among those who never see any visible fruit of the labor God calls us to, but may we see much glory 
and honor and praise lifted unto Jesus because we quietly gave our utmost obedience to him in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for the stories, the recordings, the writings and the testimonies, the witness of those who've gone before us and have suffered for doing what is right and good and who have been obedient to the Great Commission no matter what it cost them. Despite the limitations that we might feel, please forgive us for our excuses and set us free. Set us free to witness of the gospel of life and light and love without fear, without self-consciousness, without hesitation, knowing that we will suffer. Fill us with courage that we may live with bold faith no matter what the cost is. Sanctify us completely. We want to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We entrust ourselves to you, O Lord. You are good. You are kind. And you are faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.